0: This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, U.S. Senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy, talks about the origins of violence and firearms in American history. He'll be speaking with Thomas Apt, Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice.
1: Welcome, Senator Murphy. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you today. It was a pleasure reading your book, The Violence Inside Us. Uh, I found it quite compelling. I learned a lot. Uh, I think it's a useful book that uh, people Should read uh, whether or not you have um, expertise or experience on this extremely important subject um, gun violence, American violence, global violence. And so I'd like to actually just begin with the title itself uh, uh, The Violence Inside Us and the early portion of the book, where you take the reader through something of a short primer on both the biology and the history of violence. And so I wanted to ask you. Why begin there?
0: Why did you choose to begin with the nature of violence itself? Well, uh, Thomas, thank you so much for uh, doing this and really glad to be joining you and viewers to talk about this book. Um, I start with this question of um, what kind of violence sits inside us? Um, Because for me, it was the first real thorny question that I came upon. Um, when I began what has become the new mission of my political career. Um, Maybe we'll get the chance to talk about this a little bit, but while the book is really mostly a history of American violence and a conversation about how we overcome that history, um, it also involves my own political story Um, since the shooting in Connecticut in 2012. um, I, um, you know, had been pretty prodigious as a lawmaker beforehand, but I Um, had never really had an emotional connection to an issue like I do now. And it was those days after the shooting in Sandy Hook when I realized this was about to become my political calling that I started asking questions. And I think the question that I asked myself was not that different than the one many others asked themselves when they heard about this young man with no prior history of violence, with no conceivable clear motive, walking into an elementary school and choosing to gun down twenty first first graders. They thought to themselves, how on earth can a human being do that? Mm-hmm. How does the brain work in a way that convinces yourself that that is a logical next step? Um, and so I really wanted to start the book there and talk about um, how the brain compels us to violence because, well, 99.9% of us would never ever conceive of mass murder, almost every single one of us has had some moment in our life where we contemplated violence or we actually undertook an act of violence. Maybe it was as a you know, kid on a schoolyard. Maybe it was in a fight with a relative. Um, and I think it's just really important for us to understand that throughout human history, um, our species has been more prone to violence than almost any other Uh, animal species. And it has long been a way in which humans organize themselves, they maintain dominance over others, um, and they put themselves in a position to procreate. And so to me, that discussion of sort of how somebody like Adam Lanza comes to the position of conducting mass murder, understanding the ways in which broken brains operate is important, but also just understanding the way that a normal brain operates and how violence really is central to the human story going back thousands of years.
1: It's a great point. And I think that an understanding of violence, uh, to properly understand it, you do need to have this grounding. And I think that it's hard to really appreciate um, the ubiquity of violence and our sort of historical struggle with it if you don't understand that to some extent violence has not been the exception it's in fact been the norm throughout the course of human history. And so uh, I, found that, I found that particularly compelling. Let's talk about violence in the United States in particular. Uh, most people know that in terms of homicide, the United States is something of an outlier, having much higher murder rates than any other wealthy nation. Why is that?
0: So. The book also spends a lot of time trying to explore the reason why America is a more violent rate. And we'll talk about suicides and um, accidental shootings as well, but we are clearly an outlier when it comes to uh, the homicide rate. Um, and the book talks about the fact that um, that has not always been the case in the United States. In fact, for much of America's early history, um, we were not a global outlier. It wasn't until uh, the middle 1800s in which America's homicide rate started to diverge from the rest of the world. And it never came back to uh, to, to the ground. Uh, we have been a global outlier now for 150 years. Um, and there are two things that explain why those numbers, the United States versus global numbers, started to separate. Uh, the first is the expansion of slavery in the United States with the invention of the cotton gin. We brought more slaves in the United States. It compelled us to use more violence as a mechanism to order society. And America very early on became anesthetized to the use of violence. It was just a normal mechanism to con- to. Organize our economy in half of the nation and it was also used in high numbers in the north to uh, for the same reason for for similar reasons Um, and violence just became normalized the second thing that happens in the middle 1800s is we have sort of the first wave of new immigrants to the united states Uh, and it's these new immigrants sort of fighting for economic space that also begins to expand Uh, the rates of violence. Um, And then I said two things. There's really a third thing that happens in the middle 1800s. And that is um, the invention of uh, the self-repeating handgun, a handgun that can be uh, used um, uh, without reloading every single time and be concealed in your pocket. Um, the United States didn't have any history of gun regulation. And so those guns very quickly spread throughout the United States. They were romanticized by the people who were selling them. Um, And these sort of three uh, things, the expansion of gun ownership, um, the greater sort of ability to hide and conceal weapons, the entrance of new migrant groups sort of fighting for economic space, and the normalization of violence that came out of America's expansion of uh, slave population all starts to move the rates of violence and the rates of gun homicide um, in a dramatic upward direction uh, that America essentially never recovers from. And so you're not saying
1: that uh, guns are are the only reason that the United States has higher rates than average. You're saying that the reason that uh, our rates of gun violence and violence in general are so much higher is because of these two uh, of these two things. So we, to be clear, it's, it's your position in the book that the United States would be a more violent than average country, even without guns.
0: And I think this is going to maybe be a surprising concession to some who listen to me talk uh, about guns over and over again on nightly news programs. Um, I think I knew some of this going into the research for the book, but it was certainly um, reinforced for me uh, throughout my course of study. Yes, the premise of the book is that America was always going to be a more violent place. And so the question is, when you have um, this sort of this smoldering fire of violence existing in this new country, what should you do? well the last thing you should do is to throw gasoline on that smoldering fire and the gasoline in this case uh was the explosion of firearms ownership and the sort of antipathy to any kind of regulation that would make sure they only fall into the hands of folks who are responsible and so um, my argument in this book is that in fact we have an elevated responsibility in the united states of America. Uh, to control violence because uh, our history of, of slavery, our history of sort of uh, a racist caste system that was reinforced by violence, uh, and our um, uh, role as a melting pot of, ne- of ne- ethnicities that tends throughout history to increase rates of violence um, puts us in a position where violence was already going to be elevated. And so we should be careful uh, about taking further steps uh, to inflame those uh, already elevated levels of violence.
1: Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about another surprising concession that you made in the book. Uh, I found it interesting uh, that you say uh, that the Supreme Court decision, District of Columbia versus Heller, was in fact rightly decided. And for the audience, that's the 2008 case where the court recognized an individual's right to bear arms that was not necessarily connected with any militia or military service. I'd like to hear more about that. Why was it rightly decided, and what should that mean for advocates of gun control moving forward?
0: The uh, first gun control law in the state of Connecticut, and I tell this story in the book, uh, was a law compelling. That individuals attending church services and town meetings in the state of Connecticut must be armed. So, that's probably surprising to folks who now come to Connecticut and find some of the strictest laws prohibiting the ownership of weapons by certain individuals. Um, But in fact, in the early days of Connecticut's history, when frankly there was um, a fear of conflict with Native American tribes, there was a requirement that people actually openly carry weapons. Um, And I think it speaks to two things. One, it it speaks to what I believe to be a common law right that was commonly understood by our founding fathers, uh, that individuals should be able to carry weapons. Now, they wrote a Second Amendment that is sort of horribly convoluted, impossible to understand, and can conceivably be argued to really only relate to malicious, uh, to the ownership of guns by militias. But I think if you read the sort of full um, constitutional history, you will find that our founding fathers thought that people had the basic right to own weapons. But what that Connecticut law also tells you is that that right was heavily regulated. Now in that instance, <laughs> the regulation was a requirement that people own weapons, but there were far more laws during the early days of our republic in which people were prohibited from owning guns or you were required to register your weapons or your gunpowder. There was the heavy regulation of weapons during our early days, which I think tells you our founding fathers didn't think that legislators could take away your right to own guns, but they certainly thought that legislatures could heavily condition your right to own a weapon or could keep weapons out of the hands of certain individuals. I just think that that's a smart place for um, for the movement to land, which is to say, listen, we have no secret agenda, to take away your weapons. In fact, we don't think the Constitution allows for that. But we do think that from the beginning of this country's history, we've been engaged in making sure that only the right people and weapons and only the right weapons in private hands. And I think that that's a safe place where probably 70 to 80% of the country also are. I think it also happens to be um, what the Constitution commands us.
1: Very good. Um, you talk a lot about the NRA in the book. And at one point, uh, the NRA was among the most powerful, if not the most powerful, special interest group in the country. Uh, would you say that's true today? And why or why not?
0: Well, it's, it's not true today. Uh, it's not true because we have spent the last seven years building up Uh, a movement around combating gun violence that has methodically um, become more and more powerful and has now overtaken uh, the NRA. I think we have also done a very good job of exposing the NRA. Um, One of the things I talk about in this book is how the NRA has changed over the years, right? It starts as a marksmanship organization in attempts to, you know, try to make soldiers more effective with their weapons and, and to do the same thing for uh, for folks who are hunting or shooting for sport. Um, and then this guy comes along, um, uh, Harlan Carter, who I tell the story of in this book. Uh, and
1: That was a fascinating part
0: of the story.
1: I don't think many people, could you tell a little bit about that? Because I don't think many people
0: know that part of the story. So, So Harlan is a fascinating story. uh, Harlan comes out of um, the Texas border country. Uh, His whole family has worked for uh, for and around U.S. border protection. As a young man, he has a run-in with some uh, young Mexican youths who he thinks have uh, committed a crime against his family and he confronts them. And in that confrontation, he ends up shooting one of the boys dead. On a technicality, he ends up not going to jail, but it stays on his record um, such that he actually changes his name. He moves one vowel uh, in his name uh, from an A to an O uh, so that he can sort of paper over his past. He eventually joins the NRA and kind of um, objects to the idea that the NRA is sort of staying out of politics. Um, has sort of goes along with some of the early gun uh, laws of the 1960s, especially coming out of the wave of assassination. And in the 1970s, he and a group of radicals um, essentially take over the NRA. They, they, they mount um, a coup in which they pack a, an annual NRA convention in Cincinnati and outvote the folks who really saw the NRA as an advocate of gun control, an advocate of responsible gun ownership. And Harlan takes the NRA and then plasters it to the rest of the developing right-wing movement in this country. Uh, And he sees this opportunity for the NRA to not just stand for the lax regulation of guns, but also to link arms uh, with the anti-gay rights, uh, the anti-ERA, the anti-civil rights movement. And he sort of invents the NRA as the leader of a broad sort of right-wing political infrastructure in this country um, that brooks no compromise on gun laws. And it really is a fascinating story of how an organization that was pretty sleepy politically up until the 70s all of a sudden becomes um, the epicenter of America's sort of right-wing anti-regulation movement. Uh, and that's what the NRA is in 2013. Uh, when I first encounter it meaningfully in our attempts to get a background check bill passed in the wake of Sandy Hook. What do you
1: think's going to be the future of the NRA? I mean, where do you see the organization in three years or five
0: years or 10 years? Well, the second part of the NRA story is one that sort of plays out in the last 20 years. And what happens is the, um, NRA starts to rely more and more on the gun industry for donations, and the gun industry finds itself in an interesting position. Again, this is all in the book. The gun industry sort of has to deal with a changing, um, uh, a, a, a sort of changing commercial sector around firearms purchases. Back in 1980, half of American households had a gun, and so you could make a lot of money just selling one gun to lots of households. But today. Less than a third of American households owns guns, and it's going down. And so the gun industry now has to make its money by selling a lot of expensive weapons to a smaller number of people. And the gun industry goes along. So the gun industry sort of helps create this mythology of the government to get your guns. So you better load up and create a private arsenal before they ban all those weapons that you've been buying. So the gun industry starts to change and starts to be against background check because that's the way they're going to catalog your guns and come after them. They, they, they vehemently oppose restrictions on assault weapons. And all of a sudden, they get way out of step with their members. They're in step with the gun industry who needs them to be more radical, but they're way out of step with their members. And they're way out of step with the, the broad middle of the American public. And so the reason that the gun industry has become, I, I think, um, atrophied, um, has become increasingly impotent, is because we've done a great job, and in particular, these kids uh, who have taken control of the anti gun violence movement have done a great job of exposing that, sort of letting people know hey, you know, the gun lobby's fighting for stuff that even its own members don't believe in. And that's a consequence of the gun industry becoming reliant on the industry and the industry
1: changing. So I found this fascinating how sort of the interests of the NRA aligned with the interests of the gun industry which aligned with the interests of conservatives in the republican party and it you know it reminded me of this classic uh sort of uh challenge that you hear about politics in the united states which is that a uh you know well-funded uh well-supported special interest group can often overcome the will of the silent majority and so i want to ask you uh you know How do we overcome that in in the area of gun control? Um, But also, how do we deal with it more generally in Washington?
0: Well, part of it is having confidence that we're right. Um, Another story I tell in this book is the story of the 1994 midterm elections. Um, It's been sort of mythologized that Democrats lost control of the Congress in 1994 because they voted for the assault weapons ban. That's just fundamentally not true the assault weapons ban was wildly popular in 1994. Ronald Reagan was one of its primary cheerleaders. Um, There were all sorts of things that the Clinton administration did that were unpopular. The assault weapons ban was not one of them. But the NRA does a wonderful job in 95-96 with the help of people like Bill Clinton (laughs) um, to create this um, story that it was the assault weapons ban that caused Democrats to lose. And so that sort of created a new reality in which for you know, 20 plus years, Democrats just stayed away from the issue of guns because we thought it was a political loser. It was never a political loser. Hmm. And it has only been recently that we've started um, to believe the polls, which have always told us that people support restrictions on assault weapons, that they love universal background checks. And that brings me to another story I tell in the book, which is that of Lucy McBath. Lucy McBath lost to son through a horrific episode of gun violence. She uh, becomes active in the anti-gun violence movement. She decides to run for a, a congressional seat in Georgia that had been held by Republicans for 40 years. And she decides that she's not going to hold back. She is going to run as an anti-gun violence advocate. She's going to run on an assault weapons ban, on universal background checks, and everybody thinks she's crazy. Her friends beg her not to run. Um, and she wins. She wins because guess what? People like bans on military-style weapons. They love background checks. And part of how we're going to win is just having faith that we're right Uh, and by going out and running more candidates like Lucy McBath. um, That's why we won control of the House in 2018. And I think that's why we'll win control of the Senate in 2020 because we're just unapologetically running on these issues in a way that we didn't back when I first ran for Congress in 2006.
1: I want to move from politics to policy for a moment.
0: Uh, and,
1: uh, you know, in the book, you uh, you know, a co- I, sorry to back up. Um, a colleague of mine once said that the United States doesn't have one gun violence problem. It has several. And by my count, we have at least four separate gun violence challenges. We have urban gun violence, domestic gun violence, gun suicides, and mass shootings. Would you agree with these categories? And if so, how are
0: these challenges similar and how are they different? I would agree with those categories. And, and I think maybe not coincidentally, you sort of see in my book that I work through each of them one at a time. There's a chapter devoted to uh, urban gun violence, a chapter devoted to mass shootings, and then uh, sections devoted to suicides and domestic violence. Um, well, let's start with what unites them. And I think that's important. What unites them is a country that is awash in guns. What we know is that if you have an easier access to a weapon, you are more likely to shoot your wife, you are more likely to commit suicide, you are more likely to commit a uh, murder in a, a city or an urban center, um, and you are more likely to be a mass shooter. Uh, and so um, we have to accept that if we were smarter about gun regulation. If we had less guns in this country, um, if we had less powerful weapons in this country, all of those numbers would come down. And and I sort of go through methodically the evidence that suggests that states, for instance, that have universal background checks, have much lower suicide rates, much lower domestic violence rates. Um, Connecticut has four times less gun homicides than Florida does. And that's not coincidental to the fact that our gun laws are much stronger in than Florida's laws are. Okay? But then you mentioned the differences. And um, there are too many to discuss in this call, but uh, in this event. But let's just take one. The difference between gun homicides and suicides. Um, gun homicides happen in this country primarily, um, or, or most often, uh, to African-American males. Um, gun suicides in this country is primarily uh, an epidemic of white males. And it's important for us to sort of explore how we get to both places. Um, gun homicides in this country sort of tend to track a handful of neighborhoods, neighborhoods with huge rates of poverty, high levels of, uh, of, of illegal gun uh, usage, um, whereas suicides tend to be a little bit more of a rural phenomenon. Um, and in the book, I argue, is probably connected um, to this sort of loss of economic power um, that white males have experienced over the last 50 years. The, the research around suicide tells you that it's you know, not just about depression or a traumatic event. It's about a loss of connection to your community. And that loss of connection for white males as their sort of economic security has been robbed from them has been substantial. So that's why you see more suicides. Um, Frankly, the result of black people in this country having been subjugated for years means that they don't actually feel a sudden loss of connection or loss of economic power, um, because they've never had that economic power. And that in part explains why you don't see high suicide rates. Um, But because they have these tremendously elevated rates of poverty um, and a sort of cycle of marginality produced by a racial criminal justice system and other factors, you see high homicides there. So certain things connect them. Certain um, factors explain them. Uh, explain why they're different. I want to ask you a question
1: about um, emphasis. In your book, as you said, you discuss urban violence, domestic violence, and suicides all in one chapter but you give mass shootings a chapter of its own. In 2018, according to Mother Jones magazine, mass shootings killed 80 people. And obviously, each one of those deaths was a horrible tragedy. But at the same time during that year, there were over 16,000 other homicides in the US, according to the FBI, the majority of which were due to urban violence. Why do you focus so much on mass shootings in your
0: yeah Thomas it's a great question right and if and if the book devoted um, sort of the proportional amount of space uh, to gun uh, to, to people who die from gun usage based on the numbers, eighty uh, percent of this book would be about suicides because that is where the vast majority of gun deaths are in this country um, what I think I'm trying to do here is be true um, to the entry point for many Americans uh, to um, this debate and the fact of the matter is whether we like it or not the mass shootings do command the nation's attention when they happen and they are the reason why all of a sudden today we have a movement that is on the precipice of changing the nation's laws for the better and my hope is that the anti-gun violence movement can be merged in some way, shape, or form with the Black Lives Matter movement, because as I discuss in the book, you you can't make real progress on gun homicide rates in this country, especially in the cities, without doing some social and economic work in addition to work on our nation's gun laws. Um, But I do have this full chapter devoted to the issue of mass shootings, because uh, the reality is, is that right now, that's a lot of the reason that people enter this movement. That's the reason why Moms Demand Action started. That's the reason why the Giffords organization uh, started. Um, that's what commands the attention on TV, um, and that's what drives the legislative progress. You know, the, the, the moments in which we've gotten closest to a universal background checks bill was in the wake of Sandy Hook, and the wake of El Paso, and they, and so while I don't like the fact that this country only cares about gun violence when a mass shooting happens, and I tell the story in the book of getting just, um, you know, getting yelled at, at at my first public meeting in the north end of Hartford after Sandy Hook, when these African American moms and dads, you know, stand up and say, where have you been, Murphy? Right, like this has been happening in my neighborhood for decades. Now you care about gun violence. Where have you been? I, I feel that, but I understand that right now people want to know why the mass shootings are happening, and that is in part why this movement is growing. So it does uh, occupy a little bit more attention in my book. I guess I
1: wonder. Uh, I-, I think I-, I think it's hard to argue uh, that the politics are anything other than what you said, um, and that. Frankly, the public, uh, the vast majority of the public is, in a sense, valuing white lives more than black lives. However, I do wonder whether the future of the movement is not based in elevating one type of violence over, the, uh, over another, but instead of creating sort of a coherent whole so that uh, constituencies that care about violence against women, constituencies that deeply care about violence in our inner cities, constituencies that care about suicide and, of course, mass shootings, all come together. I, increasingly, I wonder whether we can't elevate one or another. that has to be sort of
0: all of us at the same time. What do you think? I, I think, I think that's, that's 100% right. And, and, and that is the message that has been sent, right? That is what those parents were telling me in the north end of Hartford. Um, they said, listen, we grieve. Um, more for the families in Sandy Hook than anybody else because we know what their pain is, right? But why do their lives matter to this country and our kids' lives don't? In the opening pages of this book, I tell the story of a young man who died in Hartford two months before Sandy Hook. And I open the book with his story because I think it's important for people to understand that Well, sort of my awakening to this issue comes through Sandy Hook. Um, His life, Shane Oliver's life, matters just as much as any of those children who died in Sandy Hook. Um, But his story occupied no space in the headlines. Um, His story never got told by the national news, but every single one of those kids in Sandy Hook had their story told. Um, And in the end, this book, I hope, is an attempt acknowledge that a lot of people come into this issue through mass shootings, but that we only beat this this epidemic, this scourge of violence, if we come together. And in Connecticut, we've done that. Um, you know, we were able to pass um, really strong gun laws in 2013 after Sandy Hook because those parents in the north end of Hartford joined forces with the parents in Sandy Hook. They literally marched together through the streets of our state, uh, and we ended up with are gun laws being changed for the better? And yes, I think that the future here is in these movements and our understanding of these issues emerging. Absolutely. And that
1: obviously corresponds to different policies. Uh, I think that one of the issues with urban violence is that urban violence, the evidence shows, is not as responsive to changes in legislation as other forms of violence. Yet it's more responsive to concrete sort of programs like focused deterrence, uh, something that you mentioned in the book. And so one of the things that I think is important is we have to mem- remember that this is about dollars as well as legislation.
0: That, that's right. And your, your work obviously highlights the importance of this. And, and it's why you know, I try to make clear um, that um, you know, the one thing that tracks exposure to violence more than anything else in this country is income, is poverty. Um, and frankly, that is um, true across several buckets of gun violence that we've talked about. Um, you are more likely to be the, to, to commit suicide, you're more likely to be the victim of domestic violence, and you're more likely to be the victim of a gun homicide um, if you are lower income. And uh, so much of the solution is just sort of coming to this conclusion that economic desperation um, does often beget violence, and whether it's focused deterrence efforts, which is you know, a way to say, listen, we're gonna identify the at-risk populations for violence, and we're gonna put resources into those populations, right? We're gonna focus resources on those populations to give them pathways to success. Um, and and it's, it's a sort of um, targeted uh, way to just solve the economic problem um and and i have this story from baltimore in which um i'm walking through the streets of baltimore as part of my research for this book and this guy comes up to me a guy who uh said he had been shot multiple times himself in the streets of baltimore and he's and he's talking about why there's more violence happening today in the city and he says hunger man it hardens your heart and that becomes the sort of uh, headline of one of the sections of the book. And what he's saying is that, listen, you do things when you're hungry, when you literally can't put food on the table, you wouldn't do otherwise. And to him, uh, and I think the data backs this up, that explains uh, many of these elevated rates of violence in the poorest sections of our country.
1: Right. I think that uh, obviously uh, poverty, lack of opportunity, these are all correlates to violence. But I also think that given the, the evidence that we've seen, that these hyper-focused programs, as you said, that identify the people in places at the highest risk for violence, and then, you know, directly work with those populations. Those can be important as well. Um, I
0: think that's, let me just say, Tom, so I think that, 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 that that's true, and I do talk about these focused deterrence programs, and I just want to make sure that we don't use that as a substitute for broader economic reform in this country, because I think it is important to recognize that the in, in, in my opinion, it, it has been the, the diminution of economic standing of white Americans that has helped lead to the suicide epidemic. Um, and, and so I, I think these focused investments of money in these at-risk populations is, I think, a way to, to, to provide a temporary fix. The more permanent fix is to recognize that we just have an economic crisis that is putting people in all sorts of economically desperate situations across the country. And that is, in part, what I believe drives some of our story of violence. And so I want to make sure we do both the targeted interventions, but then we also have that broader conversation as well.
1: Absolutely. I I mean, you can't divorce the broader social justice issues from the immediate violence issue. But I think it's important that when we're talking about violence that is disproportionately or or randomly impacting white Americans, we offer direct, concrete solutions to that violence. But when we have violence that disproportionately impacts black Americans, we're offering indirect root cause, things that will make a difference generations from now. We need both. We absolutely need both. both. But both communities, all communities deserve immediate relief from violence. But I, I know that your book goes into this and agrees with that. I want to uh, turn to the moment we're in today. Uh, it's impossible to ignore uh, the, the conflict uh, in the country right now. And you, know, you are uh, you know, well positioned to speak to this. Um, how do we navigate our way through the current crisis? There has been violence between left-wing protesters and right-wing counter-protesters literally fighting in the streets with injuries and deaths on both sides. How do we stop this? If you were president, how would you lead us out
0: out of this? And what would you do if you were Joe Biden? Sure. Well, people will notice that um, I rewrote the introduction to this book. Uh, The introduction of this book has a June 2020 date on it because I um, you know wanted to make people uh, understand that you know you can even though I wrote this book a year ago, you can read this book through the prism of today. why? well, much of what we 're seeing today has long historical roots in this country. Vigilante justice uh, has been around in America for a long time, and there is a connection between the rides of the Ku Klux Klan um, in Uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s and the caravans of um, Americans into the cities today to dispense justice uh, for these protesters. Um, There is a straight line uh, between the um, zoning laws put in place uh, in the Jim Crow era uh, to the experience today uh, in which black people and white people don't live with each other. And so a black man's experience can't be understood by a white police officer who has their knee on their neck. And so um, this book, I hope, is a way for people to understand how we got to this moment today um, and how if you don't understand that past, then you really um, can't fix this country for the future. Now, listen, just getting rid of Donald Trump will be a big step forward because the president has decided that his reelection hinges on the chaos being turned up, right? So as we tape this, he's talking about going to Kenosha, um, not to help that community heal, but to turn up the heat to try to prompt more riots so that he can claim that this is a law and order election, even though it's been his divisive rhetoric that has in part contributed to the separation. Um, so that's a big step forward. But your question is, you know, what should a new administration uh, then do? Well, again, I think the, administra- the new administrations, should, um, A, recognize that the economic crisis that exists in low-income communities in this country is a big part of the reason why this violence is occurring. I think the next administration should move quickly on reforms to our gun laws. I think the next administration should think really boldly about policing reform. Really ask yourself a question. Um, Does every law enforcement officer need a firearm? Does every emergency response call require police? Um, Can we reorient the way in which we enforce the laws such that there aren't so many potential explosions of violence? Um, And then um, back up and think to ourselves, um, how do we create a common understanding of our lives, right? Right now, you are less likely to go to school as a white kid with a black kid than you were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Our schools are becoming radically more segregated. Um, And so, let's start thinking about how we go to school, how we permit housing, how we live together so that we can have more shared experiences um, in which I don't have to buy a book to understand what a black person's life is like, that I have a neighbor who's African-American or Asian-American or uh, who's Latino. Um, All of that has to be part of the next administration's uh, policy agenda.
1: Let me gently press you a little bit further. You're the president right now, and we're seeing this chaos in Kenosha. We're seeing it in Portland, Seattle, other cities. What are some of the themes? What What would you do right now? What would you? What would be the speech you would give? What would be the actions you would
0: take? Well, again, I I think it's a little bit hard to create that hypothetical because the moment that we exist in has been created in part by a president who has been doing nothing but fan the flames, and so. I think it's a little hard to say, well, what would you do? Well, I would argue that we might not be in this moment if we had President Obama, who would have early on taken steps to heal. And those steps would have involved telegraphing that we are going to take the Black Lives Matter movement seriously, not just in words, but in deeds, right? I mean, people just right now are appreciative of the Sort of words that are being used by politicians but they want actions so um, they want a policing reform bill passed federally they want our nation's gun laws to be changed they want to see an investment in public housing and if I were president um, I would be championing those legislative efforts um, I would be using healing rhetoric uh, and well that doesn't immediately erase the pain it provides a tangible signal that um, we are going to change as a nation and um, right now, the president is doing the exact opposite, right? He is actually saying he, he's going to fight h- housing desegregation de- even harder. He is going to fight any and all police accountability measures. And he's going to go to these protests as a mechanism to fire up his base. That's the, that, that's the response that makes this worse, not better.
1: Thank you. And thank you for letting me press you on that. <laughs> um, You call your book a template for action. Uh, What are three policy actions relating to gun violence that if you had the votes and the budget that you would take right now?
0: So first uh, and foremost, universal background checks. Um, No matter how strong my state's uh, universal background checks law is, um, it is only as strong as the weakest states because the guns that get used for Homicides in my state um, uh, more often than not uh, come from states that have loose background checks laws. And so um, I think you will see a big diminution in gun crime in this country if you have a national requirement that nobody buys a gun without uh, uh, a background check. So um, that would be the first thing I'd do. Second, I would sort of pick up where we were just discussing. I would have a national investment in focused attorneys. I would say every single community, um, we're going to identify. Uh, the communities that are at risk of violence and we are going to make an investment in those communities. Um, We're going to give these kids a pathway to succeed, a vision of their future that involves sort of putting down violence as a mechanism to order their lives. Um, And then probably uh, given the moment that we are in, um, I I would double down on policing reform. Um, It is true that one of the things, and and maybe maybe you agree, one of the things that, that I believe, drives violence in uh, communities of color is a lack of legitimacy in law enforcement. Um, When, you know, you're in the city of Los Angeles and only 35 percent of homicides occurring um, to victims of color are being solved, um, then you start to think about whether you need to take justice into your own hands. The mother in Baltimore um, who lost her son and had no success in getting the police to take it seriously, said her son's friends would regularly come to her and say, "Listen, just let me take care. Let me go out there and, and deal with it." And she said, "No, I'm not going to put another family through this, but that's what's going on when um, police are not focused on um, solving crimes uh, committed against people of color, but instead are focused on rounding up people of color and putting them in jail. And so policing reform, Not just sort of getting sort of uh, police, you know, out of uh, communities of color, but making them effective in prosecuting crimes in communities of color, I think is another big part of the solution. So that's what I would say. Uh, Thank you. So let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, You
1: know, right now we have uh, some reformers calling for significant changes in policing and we have, some reformers calling for defunding or abolishing uh, the police. And uh, at the same time, we have uh, significant spikes of homicide uh, in the nation's cities on the order of 20 to 30 percent in many American cities. Uh, Research by myself and other criminologists has, has documented this pretty well. Um, and, this, and this is violence that's not happening between police and protesters. It's happening in communities, in poor communities of color, uh, between and among uh, young men without a lot of hope, without a lot of opportunity, who are often involved in this type of violence. And some people believe that, uh, and I think many people believe that the police have some role to play in responding to how do we find our way out of this? And and it feels like the politics today make it sort of impossible to find sort of a reasonable
0: middle ground. Well, I don't think it's impossible to find that reasonable middle ground. And I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months sitting down with the organizers in Connecticut who you know have been holding the defund police rallies to really try to understand what they mean by that. Um, and listen, they acknowledge that of course there has to be a mechanism by which to enforce laws. Um, What their belief is, is that the current structure is so broken that it can't just be reformed, that you essentially have to rebuild law enforcement from the ground up. And so I think it's important to understand that the defund police movement is not suggesting that there should be no enforcement of laws. They are simply saying that the existing structure is so broken as to be unrepairable, and you have to rebuild it again. Now, whether or not we're going to do that, I think we should be bold in the way that we think about how our laws are enforced in this country. That's why I, I do suggest sort of saying, thinking to yourself okay, what does the domestic violence call really mean? Does it need every time a police officer with a weapon? Do we need police officers in schools today? right? We want our schools to be safe, but does that require a police officer with a weapon to be in our schools who can arrest kids for pretty minor, you know, drug offenses or um, breaches of the peace when they get in an argument with an assistant principal? Um, So I I do think that, well, you know, I don't support eliminating the police. I do think that we should have some, you know, pretty, um, comprehensive conversations about how to rebuild the way that we, uh, enforce, uh, our, we enforce our laws. Absolutely. Um, I want to,
1: I want to, uh, wrap up with a a final question in your book. Uh, you, you really issue a call to action and you basically tell the reader, if you are moved by this book, just do something. Um, that's, that's, uh, to paraphrase what you say in one of the final chapters, what are, some, what are a few things, maybe two or three things that the average person can do right now to save lives and fight violence?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I talk a lot about in my book, um, you know, the guilt that I feel today, um, for having been a late convert to this movement. Um, the young man, Shan Alva that I spoke about who, occupies the first chapter of this book, was 20 years old when he was killed by another 20-year-old on the 20th day of October 2012, the 20th victim of gun violence in that uh, city. He, He got killed over a fight over a girl. He was going to do a transaction with a customer. He was in the car flipping business, and he was going to collect the last payment on a car, and the group that was surrounding this customer of his started mouthing off about Shane's girlfriend. And Shane fought back on behalf of the girl. He threw a punch. Uh, the Kid went back to his car, got an illegal gun, and fired it at Shane as Shane ran away. And Shane died later that day in the hospital. Um, Shane grew up like two miles away from me, um, from where I grew up. And my life growing up in a peaceful suburb um, had nothing to do with Shane's life growing up. I tell the story of his life growing up. He was constantly dealing with the threat of violence. Um, He had to become a good fighter, even with one arm that didn't work to protect himself. And he ended up dead at age 20. Um, I've decided to structure my life in a way that now I spend um, huge amounts of my time working to try to make up for lost time. Um, that's why I ran for another term in the Senate to pass laws like the ones we've talked about that would make sure that there aren't more Shane Olivers, but you don't have to run for the Senate. Um, all you have to do is go online and sign up to become a member of one of these anti-gun violence, groups the local group in your state or one of the national groups like Moms Demand Action or the Brady Campaign Against Gun Violence. All you have to do is run for local office right? Just decide to be a member of your board of education and, you know, make sure that your school is investing in the kind of programming that, um, you know, lifts kids out of poverty and make sure that kids of color don't get trapped in cycles of criminality. All you have to do is pay attention to the businesses that you frequent, right? There are national boycott campaigns right now uh, against organizations, uh, retail establishments that refuse to, um, Keep guns out of their stores. You can be part of that movement. That's worked tremendously well over the last few years. Um, you can make a donation to a candidate like Lucy McBath, who's running for office. Five dollars. Um, it'll make a difference, believe me. So there are all sorts of small things you can do and what we lack is not people who believe in the things necessary to change the trajectory of gun files. Ninety percent of Americans believe in universal background checks. What we lack is a political movement that is strong enough to actually get the changes made. And we are so close. We're so close to being strong enough. And the 2020 elections in probably will probably be that, that decisive set of elections that decides whether we start winning these fights, especially on the nation's gun laws um, in 2021.
1: So perhaps the most important thing uh, we can all do uh, to end this fight is to vote in the next election.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit trickier this time around to vote uh, than it was last time around. So everybody has to make a plan to vote, right? You got to go and, you know, figure out if you're going to vote by absentee or by mail-in vote. Do it early this year. Um, make sure you know where your polling place is if you're going to do it uh, on uh, Election Day. Um, but this year, when democracy is on the ballot, uh, when the, 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 the future of the trajectory of violence in this nation is on the ballot, Everybody's got to get out there and cast their vote.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Senator Murphy. Thank you for appearing on the program today and answering my questions. Thank you for writing the book. And thank you for your advocacy and leadership on this extremely important issue. Uh, Is there anything I've missed, anything I've left out, anything you'd like to share uh, with the audience before we go? Uh,
0: No, listen, I just, um, I'm really grateful to be part of a movement um, that has grown this quickly um, uh, and, 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 and this robustly. And I always sort of tell crowds of anti-gun violence advocates, you know, the great social change movements that you read about in the history books are not those that succeeded right off the bat. In fact, they're the ones that hit roadblock after roadblock, failure after failure. And maybe we won't pass all the laws we want in 2021, but that's not. Um, but giving up uh, is what relegates you as a movement to obscurity. It's perseverance, it's confidence in the righteousness of your cause, and it's being educated, taking the time to be educated about your cause that ultimately proves successful. And my hope is that this book helps motivate more people to become more active, but also gives them the, the facts with which to win the arguments that are necessary in order for us to prevail. Well, thank you again, Senator. Much Thanks for- a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.